You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll talk about the impacts of something called the tipped minimum wage. In many states, workers can earn as little as $2.13 an hour under the assumption that they make tips. The idea of a minimum wage that was established in 1938 as part of the New Deal was the idea that everybody who works should not be paid less than this. And yet, even from that moment, there was exceptions for black people and exceptions for women. And that's where we've come as a country is that we have these notions that somehow there are these universal things that hold nobody should be paid less, except for people that we value less. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. San Francisco's hourly minimum wage is $15.59 an hour. The federal minimum wage is $7.25. But there's another minimum. The tipped minimum wage is just $2.13 an hour, and it's been that way since 1991. That means as long as workers earn in tips an estimated $5.12 an hour, they can be paid just a little over $2 an hour. In Waging Change, a new documentary from filmmaker Abby Ginsberg, workers explain the toll this wage structure takes on their pay, which, after taxes, can come out to zero, as well as their safety and their families, and they organize to end the tipped minimum wage. Filmed over three years across different American cities, the documentary follows workers, organizers, actors, and others in the movement known as One Fair Wage. As a result of their work, the House of Representatives, but just the House, voted last year to eliminate the tipped minimum wage by 2026. Waging Change will have its San Francisco Bay Area premiere at the Castro Theater Sunday, March 22nd at 1 p.m. Filmmaker Abby Ginsberg and several subjects of the film are expected to attend. And in Oakland, the new Parkway Theater will host a screening on Tuesday, April 7th at 7 p.m. Tickets for the Castro screening are available at bit.ly slash wagingchangesf. To hear more about Waging Change and the movement it documents, we'll hear today from its creators and one of the people featured in the film. Abby Ginsberg is a Peabody Award-winning director, and she's been producing documentaries for 30 years with a focus on race and social justice. Abby, thank you so much for talking with me. It's nice to be here. And Sarah J. Rahman is the co-founder of the Restaurant Opportunity Center's United, often called Rock United, and director of the Food Labor Research Center at University of California, Berkeley. She's also co-founder and president of One Fair Wage. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for making it in. Sure. Thanks for having me. So in the film, Lily Tomlin, the actress, says that once you pay someone $3 or so an hour, there's no way they're going to be treated like a professional, even though that's what they are. And one of the things that really becomes clear in this film is how the issue of a tipped minimum wage is a race issue and a gender discrimination issue, very tightly linked to sexual harassment. What happens to the way people are treated when they're paid so little per hour? So first of all, it's really important to understand that this is a legacy of slavery, that the first uh, sub-minimum wage tipped workers in the United States were former slaves who at emancipation were asked by the restaurant industry to work for $0 an hour and live entirely off of tips. And that was because they were black and mostly women. And so I think from its inception, this has been a way in which the industry has essentially put a price tag on people's worth. Zero dollars for black women post-slavery, $2.13 an hour today for a 70% female workforce that is putting up with the highest rates of poverty and sexual harassment of any industry. And so just to answer your question, I think first it's important to say, how does the industry value these people? How do we as a country value women? And the answer is we value the largest workforce of women at $2.13 an hour. For the worker, the impact on the worker is that 
They have to live entirely off of tips because $2 is negligible. It goes entirely to taxes. These folks are living entirely on their tips, which means both that they face the highest levels of instability, economic instability, because you can imagine your rent and your bills don't go up and down, but your tips do every day, every week, every month. They differ. They vary. They go up and down. But it also makes you as a woman incredibly vulnerable to sexual harassment because our research shows that managers are telling women dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing in order to make more money in tips. And that uh, essentially is forcing women to subject themselves to objectification on a daily basis. And for one in two women in America, this is the first job. One in two. Half of us have worked in the industry at some point in their lifetimes, generally when we're young. And it's generally the first job. And if this is your first exposure to the world of work, this trains you in what is legal, normal, ethical, acceptable in the workplace. And uh, it therefore causes you to think that anything you experience later in life must be better. So we've had so many women, older women, tell us, you know, I'm now a lawyer, doctor, organizer. I've been sexually harassed recently in my current job, but I didn't do anything about it. Uh, because it was never as bad as it was when I was a young woman working in restaurants. So our industry doesn't just have the highest rates of sexual harassment. Because we've allowed this $2.13 wage to, to persist, it also sets the standard for what women and men think of as normal, legal, ethical for the rest of their lives. Abbott, did you want to add to that? I just want to say that was why I made the movie. <laughs> you know, it's all these things that sort of the mixing of all these themes and elements that really led me to believe that, you know, I thought I didn't know all of this and I certainly did not know about the 213 minimum tip minimum wage. This film was going to hopefully be sort of an educational tool to help other people around the country sort of A, learn what's going on in their own states and B, become more sensitive to the situation that they will confront in any restaurant where they're going to meet a female restaurant worker and sort of wonder, well, what's happening with her? And I would just say that there was one of the best articles I have ever read on the challenge faced by women in this situation. It profiled a woman from Durham, North Carolina, living on $2.13 in the Washington Post. And it just followed her. And every single thing Saru just said is reflected in this article, including the fact that the woman finally decided she'd better become an activist and do something to change this because her life had not gotten better over the last 20 years. It brings to mind something that someone in the film says, Jessica Winter Martin, who's a server in Washington, D.C., says, Last time I remember, politicians got together and made compromises behind closed doors about how much I was worth. I was worth three-fifths of a person. And 166 years later, I'm worth less than a third of the lowest paid worker. Sorry, can you say a little bit more about just like how we collectively are valuing people with with these wages? You know, it's interesting. We've recently grown the campaign to include not just restaurant workers, but other tipped workers, nail salon, car wash. Also, there's a huge population now of gig workers, Instacart, DoorDash, Uber, Lyft, who are tipped. And then there are other subminimum wage workers. People with disabilities get a subminimum wage. Youth get a subminimum wage in many states. And in every state in the United States, including here in California, incarcerated workers get a subminimum wage because of the exception to the 13th Amendment that allows for slavery in the case of incarceration. They're all getting less than the minimum wage because we as a society value them as less than others, less than a human being. We value women less than men, which is why, you know, six million tipped restaurant workers get a ridiculous federal minimum wage of $2.13 an hour. We value Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash. Those are largely immigrant populations. We 
value immigrants as less than others. Incarcerated people are overwhelmingly brown and black. We, we value people of color less than white people. We, we value dis- people with disabilities less than abled people. We value youth less than... In every one of these instances, we are paying a sub-minimum wage of anywhere from 13 cents, 15 cents to $2 because we value women, people of color, immigrants, people with disabilities less based on their identity. And it flies in the face of the idea of a minimum wage. The idea of a minimum wage that was established in 1938 as part of the New Deal was the idea that everybody who works should not be paid less than this. And yet, even from that moment, there was exceptions for black people and exceptions for women. And that's where we've come as a country is that we have these notions that somehow there are these universal things that hold. Nobody should be paid less except for people that we value less. And that's what's going on here. And so I think we have to address our own racism, sexism, ableism, ageism that causes us to allow employers to pay anybody, anybody less than the minimum wage when they work. As Saru just said, there is this notion of a minimum wage, which is why people are so shocked when they find out that employers, restaurant employers, are not paying that to their restaurant employees. People just assume it. The legal structure that permits this kind of a two-tiered wage system sort of flies in the face of the expectations of the public. So part of the role of the film is to educate the public. So we're all on the same page about understanding what is going on in the United States at this moment in time and why we have to come together to change it. Yes. In fact, Sylvia Allegretto, a labor economist at UC Berkeley in the film, describes this minimum wage system as one where the restaurant patron is subsidizing the restaurant rather than paying a gratuity. I don't think most consumers know that their tips are actually not gratuity in many situations, that it's actually a subsidy towards the employer that goes to the worker's wage bill. And they're pretty shocked about it, actually. How have people been responding when they see the film, when they figure out, oh, my gosh, some people are only being paid $2 and change an hour? People are genuinely shocked. If they don't know it, and many people in every audience don't know it, so they are, A, they are shocked, B, they get angry. And the first thing that they think about is if they've ever been to Europe or Latin America, they're like, well, wait, in other countries, restaurant workers are paid a wage. And that's why that you don't tip in these other countries unless you choose to. And so there's a moment of kind of an aha moment that many members of the audience go through when they suddenly realize that they always thought that the restaurants were paying. They always thought that the tips were gratuities. And suddenly they have to kind of rethink from the basis of having seen the film, what's really going on? I mean, I I think that's really important to point out that, especially for your San Francisco audience, to know that California doesn't have this system, that we 40 years ago, in fact, as a state, became the first state to say no to this legacy of slavery, that there are now seven states, including California, that have gotten rid of this system, and many more states are on the way, and that it passed in the House. But that 43 states in the United States still allow this sub-minimum wage, including some of our neighbors, like Arizona still allows a sub-minimum wage. New Mexico is still at $2.13 an hour. And so the reason why we as Californians should care is is a few things. One, as long as the 43 states are allowed to do it, the California Restaurant Association every year raises it in the California legislature that we should be allowed to have a sub-minimum wage. So we're always going to be under threat of going backwards on this issue until we resolve it for the rest of the country. But two, even if that weren't true, 
we travel. <laughs> and every time we leave the state, any most places we go, including places like New York and D.C. and Massachusetts, every time we travel, we are subsidizing multi-million dollar corporations in two ways. One, through our tips, paying these workers wages, and two, through taxpayer-funded public assistance to the tune of $16.5 billion, with a B, dollars annually that we as taxpayers pay for these workers' survival, for Medicaid, for basic forms of welfare and housing. I mean, people can't afford to live on a sub-minimum wage with tips. And, I mean, they can barely afford to live in San Francisco on $15 plus tips. But in most of the rest of the country, it's two, three, four. Most states are under $5 an hour. And we are subsidizing these companies every time we leave the state. But the third reason we really need to care as Californians is that there is an election <laughs> coming up this year. It's kind of important this November. <laughs> and there is a massive population, 14 million restaurant workers, who mostly don't vote. They have a 12% voter turnout rate. Wow. And it's because they're mostly women. 40% are single moms. They're working two and three jobs, being paid two and three, do two and three dollars an hour. It's not just that they don't have time to vote, nor capacity, nor wherewithal, nor interest, because they don't see anything changing. It's also that they've seen both parties leave them behind at 2 and $3 an hour, because it's generally Democrats who raise the minimum wage, and generally Democrats who then, in most states, not in California, leave these women out every time they raise the minimum wage. And so what happens? You end up with a massive population of women who not only don't vote, they see no point for them in voting because nobody's raising their wages, nobody cares about them, nobody's talking to them. And so we have to care as Californians about this issue because until and unless we address those women's needs, we're going to continue seeing dictators and demagogues rise because what happens when the largest and fastest growing populations in a nation can't survive and don't vote, don't engage, that's when you see a Donald Trump gain ascendance. We'll get back to this conversation with filmmaker Abby Ginsberg and organizer Saro Jayaraman about the tipped minimum wage in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. KSFP and the San Francisco Public Press are supported by listeners like you. Learn more about our membership program and join the public press at sfpublicpress.org slash donate. You can make a donation online or send a check to the San Francisco Public Press, 44 Page Street, Suite 504, San Francisco, California, 94102. Thank you, and thanks to the hundreds of other public press members who have made our work possible for 10 years. Let's talk more about the tipped minimum wage and the new documentary, Waging Change. Before we get back to this interview with Saru Jayaraman and filmmaker Abby Ginsberg, I want to play you another clip from the film, in which a D.C.-area bartender talks about the different expectations that workers and employers have in different states. This whole two-tier tip minimum wage system, that was a shock to me, particularly coming from California where there is no two-tier system. Everybody gets paid the same wage. And then years later, I moved to D.C., was uh, looking for a job, and then employers would ask me, hey, how much do you expect to get paid? And I would say, 10 to $12 plus, uh, plus tip. And they would laugh in my face. I said, only people from California expect to get paid 10 to $12 an hour. So I said, okay, then how much do you guys pay here? And he said, $2.77 an hour. And I laughed in his face, because I thought it was a joke. 
So, like, how big of a difference is there really across states that it aren't down at two thirteen an hour, but are but still have this difference? Yeah. Well, it's sort of all over the map. Uh-huh. I mean, it, you know, I was just in Nebraska with the film at the Nebra- at Omaha Film Festival. That's a two thirteen an hour state. So when I got into a dialogue with my waitress, my the woman who was serving me breakfast, and she said. Well, this is my second job. My first job, I'm a teacher for disabled adults, and I need both jobs in order to make ends meet. But she's in a 213 state, so she makes 725 an hour teaching her disabled adults and then has to supplement her income. Her husband's a public school teacher. He has to work at the restaurant as his second job. Right. So what you're seeing, and these are people who are obviously educated, and what you're seeing is that a 213 state for the tip minimum wage, which means it's a seven twenty-five or eight dollar an hour state for the regular minimum wage, does not provide a living income. Period, and that's sort of what you're hearing. And and in our film, we have a worker in New Orleans, Wardell Harvey, who has to supplement his income as a bartender. I mean, as a bartender, as a barber. And what he says is, you should not have to be gone from your house for sixteen hours a day just to put food on the table. Well, that's the point of the film. People should be able to work a 40-hour week and be able to feed their kids, feed themselves, maybe even occasionally take a vacation. I mean, we are talking about people who are constantly trying to figure out, you know, how to pay a portion of their rent bill and a portion of their electric bill and try to keep from being evicted and try to keep the lights on. I mean, every month is a struggle. And so what we're talking about is trying to help the general public understand that we have got to raise the wages for everybody so that as a country, we're taking care of our people, which at the moment we're not. Yeah. And I would just add, um, it is a crazy patchwork, you know, of states. You've got these seven states like California that require full minimum wage. You've got 20 states at the absolute bottom federal minimum wage of $2.13 an hour. And so in between those two, then you've got about 23 states that are paying somewhere between two thirteen and the full minimum wage. I would say the vast majority of those 23 states are below $5 an hour. Wow. And so that means around 40 states out of the 50 are paying people less than $5 an hour for the largest workforce of people in America, the largest and fastest growing workforce in America. And so that means we have the largest and fastest growing industry with the lowest paying jobs. We are growing the low wage floor of the economy so that more and more people are at the brink living on public assistance, unable to survive because we've allowed this industry to get away with it. And I, I think it's so important to point to the protagonist here. This didn't just happen. This wasn't like an organic thing that suddenly just appeared. No, there is a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association. We call it the other NRA. It represents the chains, the IHOPs, the Applebee's, the Olive Gardens. It's been around in various forms since emancipation. It has spent millions to keep it this way. And unfortunately, legislators on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, have rolled over to the whims and will of the Restaurant Association to maintain these absurdly low, literal legacy of slavery wages. Why does the NRA have such a huge influence? I mean, like, obviously, there are big restaurant chains who are part of the NRA, and so they have a lot of money. But, you know, why do why do legislators, why are they beholden to them? A lot of it is money. They spend a lot of money to to lobby on these issues. Um, But also there is in this country, I find, such a reverence for small business. And although the National Restaurant Association is truly led by the 
Disney's and the Olive Gardens and the big chains, the Applebee's, the IHOPs. Of course, who they put forward as the face of the National Restaurant Association is the average mom and pop restaurant owner who they've terrified into believing that there's no way we could ever pay a full minimum wage. Now, the, in, the insanity of that is the chains who leave the, lead the National Restaurant Association are all growing faster in California right. than they are in any other state in the United States. So Applebee's, IHOP, Olive Garden, Denny's, they're all growing faster in California. Why? Because when you pay restaurant workers more, guess what restaurant workers do? They eat out in restaurants. <laughs> they tend to eat in restaurants more than other people. They tip better. They pay. They, they, they go eat out because they're already in restaurants. <laughs> and so uh, you see these industries doing better because people are paid better and they're, they can afford to eat out. Um, and so the truth is that small business is growing faster in California as well than it is in the rest of the country. They, that just the restaurant industry has so successfully spread fear among restaurant owners that this can't be done and then successfully mobilized small business to go to legislators and say, don't do this. You're my legislator. Don't do this. And in some cases, they've even managed to get some workers to be terrorized, to believe that tips would go away. I mean, the insanity of that idea that somehow tips would go away if your wages went up, we know it to be insane living here in San Francisco. We all tip, even though workers get $15 an hour. And most of us have zero idea how much waiters in any other part of the country make. Right. And so why would we ever tip any differently? And that's true for most people in America. Most people don't, 99.9% .9 of people don't tip based on how much the waiter is making. Nobody even asks. And so... It logically doesn't make sense. And when you look statistically, it also doesn't make sense because San Francisco actually wants San Franciscans to know this. San Francisco has the highest tipping average of any city in the United States. We win the race. <laughs> and so the idea that somehow if you pay people more, people will tip less doesn't play out because we have the highest wages and the highest tip tipping of any city in the United States. Who, who studies that? Where, where do we know those figures from? We get that data from Square, which you know keeps track of how much people are tipping on Square. Um, and they put out averages for cities and states. And you said something interesting, which is people don't ask. What would happen if people started asking, hey, hey like, you know, do you make a good living here? <laughs> well, here's the thing. We don't want people to tip any differently, but we definitely want people to ask. And we have this thing, of, as I'm sure many of your listeners have seen Portlandia and that sketch where the um, couple goes into the fine dining restaurant in Portland and they ask about the chicken, you know, how was this chicken raised? Did the chicken have buddies? Was the chicken happy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we would love to see consumers ask in restaurants, you know, do you pay a livable wage? Do you provide paid sick leave? I want to see diversity on the dining floor. We would love people to ask those things as much as they ask, is this vegetarian? Is this organic? Is this Where did this come sourced? from? That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. So that hit the cutting room floor, that little scene from Portlandia in my <laughs> film. But it was in there for a while. <laughs> um, so let me just say that one of the things I think that happened both to me is that I started to engage with restaurant servers as I went around the country. So what Saru just said is really true because I hadn't, you know, before I had, like, my consciousness raised, I didn't engage. And so, like, as I say, the things I learned in Omaha, I wouldn't have even asked those questions. Um, and my experience with restaurant workers is they are so grateful somebody cares. They want to tell you. They, I mean, that's why this woman gave me her whole story about herself and her husband and so on. So it, it really changes, I think, the nature of the relationship once you as a consumer become educated to sort of engage and see what's going on with the person who's bringing you your food. 
Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back to this issue that you raised earlier about people who need government assistance, even though they are working. There's an Economic Policy Institute data brief from 2014 that showed that while the poverty rate of non-tipped workers is 6.5%, tipped workers have a poverty rate of 12.8%. And this is some old data now, so it may have changed since then. But that shows tipped workers are nearly twice, twice. as likely to live yeah. in poverty as non-tipped workers. How how are they getting by? I mean, and what does that mean for us in terms of the subsidies that you were talking yeah. about earlier? I mean, I think it's important to point out before we even talk about that, <laughs> the main restaurant association argument to legislators is that these workers don't need a raise because they make a ton of money in tips mm-hmm. and they're all doing really, really well. <laughs> I remember being called by the budget office, Senate budget, U.S. Senate budget office, and they said, oh, uh, the restaurant association was just here and they said that their workers make $18 an hour with tips. Um, Do you have any data that shows otherwise? And so I sent them the government data. This is employer-reported payroll data that shows that tipped workers get $9 an hour, including tips, which is why they have twice the poverty rate of everybody else. And so they asked the Restaurant Association for their data, and the Restaurant Association sent a letter on Restaurant Association letterhead that said our workers make $18 an hour with tips. And this is the ridiculous kind of data that they have provided the government and legislators for so long saying these workers make a ton of money. And for for professionals who worked in the industry in college, they remember making a lot of money. And so for some people that resonates. But the truth has always been in the data that you're looking at, that the vast majority of workers who work on tips do not make enough to survive, do not make enough uh, to make to feed their families, which is why they're on public assistance. And so you're talking about $16.5 billion with a B dollars annually that we as taxpayers pay in Medicaid, in emergency hospital use, in uh, all the different kinds of, uh, of welfare, all different kinds of public assistance. Uh, and that's not something that workers want to be on. It's not something they like to be on. It's not something easily obtained. It's not something that these young kids, college kids are getting for extra money for the prom. Yeah, these right. are middle, these are about, median age is about 35 to 40. It's highly stigmatized to get public assistance. It's very hard to get public assistance, but they have no choice. They have no choice because as Abby described with her waitress in in Nebraska, it's just impossible to live on these wages. And that is why, by the way, we have the highest rates of home insecurity, meaning people who are unsheltered of any working population in the United States. People work multiple jobs in this industry and live in their cars uh, or live on somebody's couch or live in a shelter. Mm-hmm. Well, you just brought up something else about being on the brink in this way constantly, which is you know hospital usage. We are facing a potential pandemic right now, and what happens when people are are paid so little money? From what I understand, you know, from the film and from also knowing people who are paid so little money, is that it becomes very dangerous to be to face the possibility of not having enough hours anymore or having to stay home. So, I mean, is there a concern there about particular vulnerabilities? vulnerability among among restaurant and tipped workers to coronavirus and, and the spread of other diseases like this? Yeah, it's really it's really a, a crisis situation right now because 90 um, percent of workers, restaurant workers in America report working when very sick regularly. And uh, and most do not have paid sick days. Again, California offers some paid sick leave for workers. It's not enough. Um, some other states and cities provide paid sick leave, but 
The thing about getting a sub-minimum wage and living off of tips is that even if you have a paid sick day, if you are living mostly off of tips, there's only one way to get those tips, and that's to go, go to, to work. work to get those tips. So what we really need is not just paid sick leave, but also one fair wage with tips on top to ensure these workers are able to stay home when they're sick. 70% of foodborne illness is comes from sick restaurant workers, and more than half of all norovirus cases in the United States can be traced back to sick restaurant workers. We know that before coronavirus really hits us in a big way, why wouldn't we solve for that problem before we're hit with a massive pandemic? So what is Rock recommending that employers and that governments do? One Fair Wage is calling on governors across the country and state legislatures to make an emergency push for both paid sick leave and One Fair Wage as the only way to really ensure that these workers uh, can stay home, meaning you can't have a sub-minimum wage and expect these workers to stay home. They're going to have to go to work to get those tips. I want to talk a little bit more about one detail that kind of jumped at me in the film, which is that I think um, you, Sari, said that you know sometimes people, what what they end up getting on their paycheck because of taxes and because their wage is so low is zero dollars. And that just seems like that blows my mind, to be honest. <laughs> like, how how is that even possible? How does that happen? I mean, if you're earning $2.13 an hour, all of it's going to go to taxes. There's nothing left. <laughs> um, and so that means you're living entirely on your tips. And by the way, uh, we have any number of situations where workers have come forward and said, my employer doesn't pay me at all. I'm living entirely on tips. We just had a bar in New York, a fairly well-frequented bar in Brooklyn, and a group of workers come forward and said, well, we've never been paid a wage. We just live entirely on our tips. And, and this is the problem is when you have a $2 wage, the workers don't actually count on it at all. They, For anything, they think it's, yeah. They think it's negligible, and they really are focused on just getting those tips. Well, they think it's negligible. They're right, right? They're, it is negligible, <laughs> yeah. yes. But what's the, the problem is that, that what that creates for most workers in this industry is they think that their earnings are the tips and the wage is just like a bonus or an extra when, in fact, it's exactly the opposite. Yes. The wage should be the earning because that because who's profiting off your labor? Your employer. They should be paying for the value of your labor. The tip is the one that should be the extra or the bonus, not the wage. But it's incredible how this industry has warped people's minds, consumers, workers, into basically getting away with this incredible boondoggle by saying, we shouldn't pay our own workers' wages. We're going to have another group of working people pay our <laughs> workers' wages for us. And this $2.13 tip minimum wage has been the same since 1991. Is that right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the National Restaurant Association in ensuring that it has stayed at that level? Well, it started at zero, let's be clear, right. and then it went up uh, to 213 by 1991. In 1990, that was the last time it went up, from 185 to 213. In 1995, a man named Herman Cain, who some of your listeners may remember, <laughs> uh, was the head of the National Restaurant. Well, first he was the head of Godfather Pizza, and then he was the head of uh, the National Restaurant Association. While at the other NRA, uh, he sexually harassed all kinds of women who then later came forward when he tried to run for president uh, and basically caused him mm -hmm. to step down from his run for president. Uh, but he's 
still been around. You know, people know who Herman Cain is. In 1995, he struck a deal with the Democrats and with President Clinton as the head of the National Restaurant Association saying, we will allow you to raise the overall minimum wage as long as the subminimum wage for tipped workers gets frozen forever. And that is how it has stayed at $2.13 an hour for now almost 30 years, which means we have, in our membership, we have two generations of women, mothers and daughters, Daughters. who've been working on $2 for their entire lives. And enough is enough. And so that's why we were very happy that the new House of Representatives did pass One Fair Wage, saying this is absurd and ridiculous and called for a full $15 for everybody, tipped people with disabilities, everybody. Uh, But it's not going to move in this Senate with Mitch McConnell. Certainly this president's not going to sign it. And so what we need is for states to move on this issue until we can come back and get it done at the federal level. And and I would say there's reason to be somewhat optimistic that states are beginning to do yes. this. So it's, you know, it is something that can happen at the state and even the city level. Um, and the film, you know, tries to talk about some of the efforts that have been made around this. So, you know, I mean, part of the kind of the empowerment message is if you live in a 213 state, you know, the, the don't mourn, organize. Right. And start really seeing what you can do about it in your own state. Because there are always going to be some, you know, progressive legislators who want to help get this through. It's it's an issue that, you know, for many years, it was like every few years, the federal minimum wage would be raised. So it's this is a new kind of, I don't know, vise that we're in. Where, you know, there was a 30-year trade-off. Um, and I'm just hoping that the film will sort of pique people's interest and consciousness around this and actually create more activism around the idea of a real minimum wage for everybody. Just before we move on to what else can be done, did did you speak with the National Restaurant Association for this film? What did they tell you? Um, I We have various quotes from them. I was unable. I tried actually under many circumstances to try to get an interview with Dawn Sweeney, who's the head of it. And they either ignored me, blew me off in one way or another. So, in fact, I was unable to get an interview with them, but we have representatives of the National Restaurant Association um, in the film. And I spoke to various congresspeople. I was interested in whether the National Restaurant Association tried to sort of line the pockets of the progressives who are clearly on the side of getting rid of the tip minimum wage and increasing minimum wages in this country. And they said, no, they don't come to them. So the National Restaurant Association is aware of who their friends are and who is never going to be a friend of theirs. And they just spend their dollars on the people who they can count on. Um, And the people who are clearly sort of on the side of workers and on the side of one living wage never get visited by the NRA. (laughs) So everybody kind of knows who's who in this battle. Um, But I think people don't know the insidious role that the NRA plays. And, you know, you sort of said it early, and I want to underscore it. It's like the people who say that they cannot possibly increase the minimum wage in a 213 state are the people from Denny's and Olive Garden and IHOP who are actually paying whatever the states require. They have to. So it's just, I mean, it is a pack of lies. um, And, you know, hopefully what's going to happen is that as kind of the movement moves forward, there will be a better understanding that this is possible, that all the states can do the right thing, and that over time we'll sort of see the states move in the right direction. 
But one other thing I want to get to is that technically by law, if a worker isn't earning that minimum wage with their tips, so if their tips don't make up that $5 and change or whatever it is to bring them up the minimum wage, the employer needs to make up the difference. And my understanding is the industry is not doing great in terms of complying with that. How well are they really doing and who enforces this? Yeah. So the federal government is supposed to enforce this as our state departments of labor. But... Uh, what we know is that we had the highest levels of enforcement of these laws under the Obama administration, and the Obama administration, in trying to enforce this issue, found an 84% violation rate with regard to employers actually complying and ensuring the tips brought you to the phone. 84% violation, not compliance. Yeah, violation. Called wage theft. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's call it for what it is. Yeah. A 16% compliance rate, yeah. and that's probably uh, higher than what it is actually because – uh, because most workers don't report the fact that they're not getting their full minimum wage. So 84% violation rate with regard to these issues to the point that the Solicitor General under Obama's Department of Labor, Pat Patricia Smith, declared the issue unenforceable. She said this is not an enforceable issue because um, employers just will, will not comply. There will never be enough uh, people working at the Department of Labor to make sure every restaurant complies. So she actually came out saying the only way to really resolve this issue is just pay people a full minimum wage. Don't have two tiers. It's really too difficult to enforce. Just have one wage with tips on top. It's much, much easier. Um, but, I, but I think it's so important to note that even if we did have 100% compliance and employers were counting and making sure that mm -hmm. tips made up the difference, you'd still have a 70% female population that is forced to get tips as a, the major part of their wages and thus very, very vulnerable to sexual harassment. And I just, I think for people who say the National Restaurant Association, National Restaurant Association loves to say, we don't need to raise this wage, let's just enforce the law. But then when you try to actually enforce the law, they oppose that, of course. <laughs> and now they are in really good shape because their BFF and member, Donald Trump, who's a card-carrying member of the National Restaurant Association, um, has provided them with funding through the federal government, um, has you know, done their bidding and essentially has stopped all enforcement of this issue at the federal level under our current Secretary of Labor. And, and just one more thing, which actually one of the workers in the film says, if you are a worker who is sort of aware that, you know, maybe 16 to even $40 has not been paid to you, it's upon threat of maybe losing your job that you complain about it. That's right. So it, basically, the system is set up to keep workers from complaining about it. It's sort of set up to protect employers from worrying about whether they're paying it or not. And, you know, until we unravel that and make some basic changes, we're not going to get very far with it. So I do want to talk a little bit about uh, there is some hope here. There's some silver lining. Like we already talked about how the House has passed um, a piece of legislation that would eliminate the tip minimum wage by 2026. And that would also raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Mark Bittman, a former op-ed and food writer for The New York Times, points out in the film that when Fight for 15 started, this movement built largely by fast food workers to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, people thought that was insane and way too high. And now they're now winning. Look at us. Yeah. Um, right. And so I, how have how has the conversation about this changed? How have industry leaders responded in the past and and how is that shifting over over the over time? Yeah. I mean the biggest shift for us was Me Too and Time's Up. Um when Me Too happened, it it really 
unearthed all of the research we had done showing the relationship between subminimum wage and sexual harassment. I was at the Golden Globes with Amy Poehler. It was kind of a action on on the on the issue. Um, she had worked in the industry for 15 years, Amy Poehler, and so we went together representing the restaurant industry. That actually resulted in Governor Cuomo in New York announcing that he would move on this issue to provide one fair wage for tipped workers, which he has only partially done so far. Um, and it also resulted in 16 other states introducing bills for one fair wage. So the biggest shift has been when people recognize that this is mostly women dealing with the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry, um, that has that's where we've seen the biggest shift with legislators. And I just think, again, I mean, you know, I made the film so that we would educate more people every time the film was shown. A few hundred people would get educated and we would add to, you know, the knowledge base across this country. Um I think people will, in fact, be somewhat appalled to hear that the minimum tip minimum wage has not been raised since 1991. Um, the thing you said about the $15 minimum wage, that is now essentially taken for granted. You know, so states that are only paying $7.25, people in those states know that other people are getting paid $15 an hour. So I think we're going to begin to see more movement on this across the country. Um, and, you know, and I, I would say something else about the Time's Up thing. What Time's Up was one of the major cultural shifts we've all lived through recently, you know, where women could have complained till their, you know, complained their hearts out for years and years. And people were like, oh, just put up with it. It's part of the job. You know, you're just whining. Something happened in this country around Time's Up where actually women's voices were heard and women were, you know, were supported for coming out and more and more of them did. Big restaurant owners and chefs had to give up their jobs because it was so rampant in the restaurant industry that once they were named, they had to go find other places to work and other things to do. So I think it was a major cultural moment. So I think where we're going here is for another major cultural moment around minimum wage, tip minimum wage, and maybe we'll actually see this in our lifetime. I mean, that's I'm, I'm almost a little bit optimistic about that. I think the major cultural moment is about income inequality in yes. America. And the sum minimum wage is the epitome of that, really addressing these legacies of slavery that and, and gender pay inequities that result in us having the highest rates of income inequality in our histories, in our nation's history, higher than the Gilded Age. And it is the reason we have this man in office. Let's let's be clear. When you have, again, masses of the population, the largest and fastest growing industries, living in poverty, unable to survive, not interested in voting because they've seen nothing really happen as a result of a change in parties. No no real change in their situation. If you're looking at 30 years of a $2 wage, how many Democratic and Republican administrations have been through? How many changes in Congress have been through those 30 years? And these women are still at $2.13. Would you vote if you saw both parties sell you out like this for 30 years? No. And what happens when you don't vote, you don't care, Demagogues arise. Dictators arise. When you look at global history and you see really scary things happen in world history, they happen in moments like this when masses of the population feel completely disenfranchised from the political system, see nothing in it for them. And that, that is why I keep saying we ignore these women and these workers at our care. peril. 
just before we end, because um, I know we're running out of time, we've talked a little bit about what restaurant patrons can do differently. Also, but since so many of us have worked in the restaurant industry ourselves, what can workers do and what should patrons do to effect change and improve working conditions? I'll start. Uh, so workers can join us. <laughs> they can go to onefairwage.org and sign up and become tell their story and join the fight to raise the minimum wage, um, eliminate the subminimum wage. Consumers can use an app that we've created called the ROC National Diner's Guide. It tells you which restaurants are doing the right thing. And I want to give a shout out. There are lots of great restaurants in San Francisco and the Bay Area that have been part of our fight. Um, Daniel Patterson's restaurant group actually has been great partners to ours. Uh, Kingston 11 in Oakland is a wonderful restaurant that's been part of our High Road Association. Um, Cafe Strada and the Strada Group in Berkeley has been a wonderful group. That's been a group of restaurants that have been very, very supportive, and many others. I could go on and on. But there's a large group of restaurants in California and across the country who've been incredibly supportive um, and who actually come with us to Congress to say we need a full minimum wage. So consumers can use the app to see who the high road, we call them high road restaurants are, people taking the high road to profitability. But more importantly, they can use the app to tell their favorite restaurant owner, hey, I don't see you on this list. I'd really like to see you join forces with the people taking the high road. And there are options in the app for you to refer an employer to to join forces with us and put in their information or for a worker. So if you, like Abby, start talking to your server, which you should do, <laughs> and uh, encouraging them to join this fight, whether they live in California or wherever they live, um, ultimately the conversation to be had is to say to your server or any restaurant worker you interact with, I know you're a professional, and as long as this country values the, this work at $2.13 an hour, even if you get more here in California, as long as that's a federal minimum wage, you will not be valued as the professional, skilled professional that you are. And so we all need to join forces. And so in the app, there's also a button you can hit to say that says refer a worker. You can refer your favorite server to join forces with us as well. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think the other thing people need to do is, like, come to see the film and get educated about this. Um, so come on March 22nd to the Castro Theater at 1 p.m. And tickets are available at www.wagingchange.com. That's an, a slightly easier uh, website to remember than the bit.ly one. So, you know, please come join us on March 22nd and learn learn about this for yourself. Abby and Saru, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about all this. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That was Saru Rahman and Abby Ginsberg. Waging Change will have its Bay Area debut on Sunday, March 22nd at 1 p.m. at the Castro Theater. You can find more information at bit.ly slash waging change. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic.